You're listening to a podcast from the 2020 National Climate Emergency Summit. To lead us into the session, our next presenter has been one of the main supporters and advocates for establishing this summit. He's been a long-time advocate and campaigner of a range of local and global issues. A former president of the Australian Conservation Foundation, he has served as a cabinet minister, indeed as Minister for the Environment, under two Australian prime ministers. He needs little introduction, really, because he's an icon in this country. Please welcome Peter Garrett. Gee, thanks very much, Mary, and thanks, everybody. I know that we're running a little behind time, so I've had the red line out on my speech, for which some of you will probably be grateful. But uh, it is true that uh, I really did want to see this summit happen, and I'm absolutely delighted, A, to be able to speak, uh, and B, to spend some time both with you uh, in the room and also listening to uh, other speakers and participants in the panel. It's a really, really important day. So, as a young boy, I walked through the bush, and I loved it. And I developed an affection and a little bit of an understanding about the natural world. And I reckoned, as a kid and as I grew older, that we should look after it. Uh, as an artist, I was with a group of people that wrote songs about those things and went out and supported people uh, who were working to protect nature. As a conservation activist, I headed up the ACF for a number of years, where we worked closely with government, with the community, with farmers, uh, with business, and with the political system to try and secure the protection of nature. And at a later stage, I walked into the parliament and spent 10 years in Canberra, six years uh, in successive Labor cabinets, as Mary said, as environment minister, and then later on as school education minister. And one of the reasons I went into the parliament was because I was so agitated by the fact that the then conservative government under Mr Howard were not taking climate change seriously. And for me, it was a meta-environment issue, even though it's obviously got a number of incredibly important personal dimensions. But five and a half weeks ago, with the new year barely underway, I stood aghast where I live, uh, in Kangaroo Valley, in southern New South Wales, looking at the wooden cliffs of the escarpment, about 600 metres high, rimmed by a massive blanket of smoke, unlike anything I'd seen or imagined. This one was the Carowan megafire, a big one amongst hundreds, alight and on the move down the eastern seaboard and in four states across the country. And despite the Herculean efforts of firefighters, many of them volunteers, for weeks, this smouldering giant had been advancing inexorably towards Kangaroo Valley Village and its outlying hamlets. And I watched a deep orange glow, like giant footlights on a stage illuminating this massive curtain of brown on the other side of the escarpment and the cliffs. In a matter of minutes, above that smoke blanket, a bundle of pyrocumulonimbus clouds formed spiralling skyward as the fire spawned its own violent weather system. A water bomber swooping over the ridges to drop its load was like a tiny insect 
spitting into the mouth of a dragon. The fire had been declared catastrophic. Residents had left for safer locations, a difficult task as areas to the north and the west and the south were already ablaze. Roads were blocked, bird calls had been replaced by sirens, and our tipping point had been reached. We'd lost control of the weather. And the fact was that we had been warned about this for years. And what we had been warned about, and what I knew about and had felt in my public and in my private life, had come to pass. So the fires raged, people were evacuated by naval vessels from the coast as we saw on the television news and read about. And at the same time, what Michael Mann was saying before to us here, the ice sheets were melting quicker. Carbon dioxide was filling up the oceans, which were turning barren and hot. These phenomenons all part of the same process, the climate emergency, the emergency that brings us here today. I don't need to go into the fact, but I do need to honour and record the experience that people went through at that time. Homes and farms destroyed, wildlife decimated, collapse of local economies already happening. And it's a reminder of the massive costs, social, environmental, and economic, of climate chaos. And the fact that what we've always said, those of us working on this issue, and all of you in this room know, costs that only rise unless we take urgent action now. Now that Carowan fire, it's a mega fire, ended up burning for over 70 days and left a trail of destruction in its waste, but we were spared. Others were not so lucky. The community spirit rallied. The fireys toiled bravely day and night, and they showed us our best qualities as Australians. Yet none of this could undo a cataclysm that would affect people for decades. We were face to face with the future, and it was a world of pain, a world of heartache, and a world of harm, and this was only the beginning. So. The question I'm asked is, how do we develop a stand-up, fearless form of leadership, given the failure so far to implement any far-reaching national measures to help confront and minimise this climate emergency? And one thing is certain, and you will hear it here again, many of you know it, but it needs to be repeated, we no longer have the luxury of prevarication or deferral or wishful thinking, and certainly not of blind denial. The time for half measures and incremental action is well and truly over. But there's hope as well. Right here, the thought and action leaders in the Melbourne Town Hall, including on the panels to come, there are plenty of fearless advocates among us, and we've heard some already. And I'll draw on some of their insights as I speak to you today. Still, we do have to ask ourselves why. Why have we failed to deal satisfactorily with the climate crisis now upon us? Now, of the many reasons offered, from the disproportionate strength of the resources industry to voter apathy, the answer is that notwithstanding these and other factors as well, above all, we're experiencing an abject failure of national leadership. And in response to that failure, people are mobilising. 
the environment re-emerging as a matter of significant concern for Australians, the Governor of the Reserve Bank calling for certainty, code word for, will you get your act together in the Parliament and pass decent laws to allow the nation to exploit, and I quote, fantastic renewable energy opportunities. European governments are setting ambitious reduction targets. Renewable energy is now established as a cost-effective way of producing electricity. As you know, a number of local councils, regional, state and national governments here and overseas have big targets, have declared climate emergencies and more will surely follow. Yes, the broad arc of history suggests that when enough people stand up, believe deeply and are willing to move mountains, then change will come. And yes, one common element when the times demand that change, that is in different ways, leaders, both elected and unelected, emerge and are essential. And of course, we've seen some of those leaders on the screen. Yet in Australia, the absence of such leadership is what's holding us back. As the New York Times headlines succinctly put it, when will Australia's Prime Minister accept the reality of the climate crisis? Question mark, full stop. Local and state governments, let alone communities and individuals, cannot do the hard work on their own. Ultimately, the only institution that can guide and underwrite a major challenge of the scale we face in the time we have left is the national government. And I'll return to what they could do in a moment. But this crisis is also at a deeper level about our core Australian values. And here, surely, it's a matter of returning to first principles, as understood in a religious, humanitarian, or even planetary sense. It is wrong, sorry, in those senses, and I should say, and if by these principles, say, do unto others, or do no harm, or protect all living things, a certain action is understood to be wrong, the task of opposing and putting it right is the only reasonable and moral thing to do. And added to which, applying those other values that make humans a successful species, collaboration, cooperation, partnerships, innovation and bravery. It is wrong to irresponsibly jeopardise the future by polluting the atmosphere to such an extent the world becomes a furnace, committing national suicide, to use the words of Nobel Prize winning scientist Peter Doherty. Who can deny this? Only those betraying the interests of their fellow citizens. It is wrong to leave the poor who can't afford to cushion themselves against climate impacts and less well-off Pacific neighbours who played no part in bringing the world to the brink with nowhere to turn. Who can deny this? Only those with such rampant self-interest or blinkered ideology, they persist even when the evidence is spray canned big and large on the wall. Their power and influence must be taken away. It is wrong to frustrate It is wrong to frustrate real action 
on reducing the risk of climate chaos, to pretend the situation is under control, and to sabotage international efforts to reach agreement on reducing emissions. Who can deny this? Only those unfit to govern. So leadership comes from every person who stands up and takes a stand and declares we must act, as young people have begun to do. Leadership comes from those who get involved and stay involved, whether in lobbying, education or non-violent direct mass action. All needed more than ever. All worthwhile until the race is won. Leadership of this kind cannot be described down to the last detail, but I sense it emerging from many different parts of the country. It's present in the work of NGOs like the ACF and Greenpeace, in campaigns like Stop Adani. It's present in the work of local governments and institutions responding to the challenge in front of us, responding to a climate emergency. They are our hope. To them, we must add all our efforts. The next part of the question quickly is, what does a climate emergency response look like? Now, as you heard earlier, and doubtless you'll hear again, in 1942, the Australian Prime Minister John Curtin contemplated the threat of Japanese invasion. To secure Australia's survival would require nothing less, he said, and I quote, than the reshaping, the revolutionising of the Australian way of life until a war footing is arrived at, quickly, efficiently and without question. This meant the resources of the state had to be mobilised to that end above all others. Now, as climate chaos most resembles war in the scale of threats to humanity, the climate emergency dictates the nation must go on to a war footing. So think John Curtin as Japan advanced in 1942, US President Franklin Delaro Roosevelt in the Depression, Winston Churchill in World War II, and more recently, Jacinda Ardern at Christchurch. It can be done. So what might a national leader determined to respond to the climate crisis actually do? So here's a scenario. He or she walks into the House of Representatives and moves as follows. That the parliament accepts the best scientific evidence that to hold temperature increases to around 1.5 degrees and avert an increasingly dangerous climate crisis, we must act immediately to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Recognises that Australia is particularly vulnerable to climate chaos caused by consistently hot weather nationwide, as evidenced recently by the largest, most destructive bushfires in living memory, understands that any delay poses incalculable costs and greatly increases the risk to national security and the stability of our immediate region equivalent to war in terms of impacts, acknowledges that real action has been left to the 11th hour and that the unjust burden of repairing this negligence will increasingly fall upon the young. 
recommends to the House a joint sitting of the Parliament to declare a climate emergency and approve plans to enable the Commonwealth Government working in partnership with state and local governments, large and small business, unions, farmers and the community to deal with the crisis immediately. What follows? A super department aligned to Treasury, similar to the Department of Post-War Reconstruction headed up by Nugget Coombs in 1946, is formed with the specific task of implementing the transition. A standalone War Cabinet in inverted commas, chaired weekly by the Prime Minister, charged with the responsibility of overseeing the new plan, ensuring Australia meets new ambitious emission reduction goals. The Australian Defence Forces and the Army Reserve geared up to play a greater role, given climate chaos will put significant pressure on domestic infrastructure and emergency services, as well as the unpredictable ways it will reshape geopolitics in our region, including with growing numbers of climate refugees. At a time of record low interest rates, the government should issue long-term climate bonds to boost investment in new zero-emission industries. The economy should be stimulated by a, massive, by a massive public works scheme to build resilience to extreme climate, including the provision of large-scale tree planting and vegetation management to draw down carbon already in the atmosphere, rehabilitating degraded waterways and landscapes, involving farmers and regional communities with substantial participation by First Nations people. A rapid transition out of coal with an immediate moratorium on future coal, oil and gas developments while increasing the target for renewables. Increasing the target for renewables, the most successful measure for reducing emissions we've had so far, is essential. A special transition fund for displaced workers to provide support, retraining opportunities and adjustment with a minister responsible, and inescapably, above all, a targeted price on carbon to enable a faster reduction in greenhouse pollution with the revenue used to compensate those unduly affected, stimulate clean technologies and strengthen our physical and industrial infrastructure for the consequences of wild weather to come. Before the Gillard government scheme was brought down by a climate-denying former Prime Minister and let the record show it was Tony Abbott who destroyed the scheme, it actually worked. Emissions came down for the first time in years and the sky did not fall in. This is where the future growth will be. New jobs are already being created in so many areas. Greywater specialists, builders expert in fire protection, manufacturers of new battery technologies, developers of solar farms. These new jobs already exist. More will come. So there is a positive future, which is also kind to the planet. And with the leadership of people who care, who care about the Great Barrier Reef, who care about the fate of the world, who care about the future for their kids, people from all quarters, school students, senior citizens, sports clubs, homes, farms, factories, boardrooms, all of us, naming the climate crisis a real emergency, demanding our leaders respond and continuing that demand until they do, ensuring this great challenge can be met 
and a safe future one. As the mega fires of 2020 showed us, there's no time to waste. So let's get on with it. Thank you. This was a podcast from the 2020 National Climate Emergency Summit.